0: If we haven't met before, I'm Ashley, and I'm the senior pastor here. And I'm so glad that you're here for our Ohana series. Ohana is Hawaiian. It means family. Could be adopted family, could be biological family, but it's Hawaiian for family. And family means no one's left behind, nobody's forgotten. And God says the church is a family. And this week, uh, I was actually meeting with Lawrence. Lawrence, come on up here. He's got a microphone somewhere in his pocket. Uh, and he's like, hey, we need to pray for Hawaii. We're in this series. And they just had those terrible fires a couple weeks ago. I was just reading about it last night. They still have 388 people missing, unaccounted for, presumed dead. It's, it's crazy what the people of Lahaina are dealing with. And I, I don't think we talk about stuff like that a lot because it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's in our country. It's not like some big foreign thing. But uh, we want to pray for the people of Hawaii. And uh, Lawrence, you brought this to my attention. We should pray for the people of Hawaii. He's part of our prayer team. And I'm like, yeah, we should. And I was going to pray for them. But I thought, no, 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 the church is all of us. You should pray for them. So let, let's just join him in praying together for the people of Hawaii.
1: Yeah, Father, we say thank you that we come to you. God, you put Hawaii on our hearts. Come on. God, we were learning about family, even using Hawaiian words. And and it's on our hearts, we know that the people that are hurting are in your hearts so much more. So God, we know that nothing catches you by surprise. So Father, we lift them up to you. God, you're the one that can bring comfort and healing and hope through every situation. You're the one that can hold their hands and let them sense your nearness as they walk through this disaster. You're the only one that brings hope when it looks like there's no hope. You're the only one that brings comfort, Father. You who are the eternal God, the great I am, the one who is and was and is to come. Well, God, we pray for them and we pray that they would sense your nearness, that they're not alone, that they're part of your family, your creation, that every single one of them was created by you, For your purposes, God, that you know every hair on every head of those that were found, those that are lost, that you care about them. You care about the hurting families. You care about their hearts. You care about the pain they're going through, Father. And we ask you to meet them where they're at as only you can. You are the need meter. You are the one, God, who knows our hearts and can fill every void, every need, take away pain and fill it with love. So, you who are the way, the truth, and the life, we ask you god to be to the hawaiian people everything they need during this time we ask you to give them a comfort that's eternal a comfort that goes beyond what we have in this world that we live in father you are the only one that can give a grace a grace that overflows loss and grieving god so we pray for them and ask for your divine intervention your help is only you can do it because we know if we care about them you care so much more so we thank you as our loving Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. You could keep the mic. Come on. Prayer is the most powerful thing that we could do for anyone. And so we are honored to be praying for Hawaii. And uh, we were able to send them a financial gift as a church last week. So. Like I said, thanks for joining us for this Ohana series, and uh, we're talking about the church as a family. We're in Ephesians two eighteen through nineteen. We'll put it on the screens for you if you don't have a Bible with you, and if you do have your Bible, you can turn there. Ephesians two eighteen to nineteen. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. And then uh, a little further down, it says, "You are members of God's family." I love it. God gives that picture of his church being a family. When we trust in Jesus, we get adopted into his family. And over and over in the Bible, in the New Testament, he talks about what it means to be a part of the church as a family. Uh, We all come from different family backgrounds, and when we trust in Jesus and become part of His family, He changes us, He reparents us in such a good way, in such a healthy way, and all the good things that we learned, man, He just shows us His original intent for them. And all the things that hurt us, He does a healing work that only God can do. And so we are the church, it's not a place that we go, it's who we are. I was reading this week about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it's in Jerusalem, and it's supposed to be one of the most holy places in the world. It's, it's built on the site that people think that uh, Jesus was crucified, and uh, where they also think he was put in, in the tomb, and so where the tomb was empty, he was resurrected. And so they built. This church, you know, a few hundred years after that, and there's all kinds of different Christian uh, denominations and sects. Sects, c s e c t s. I know this doesn't sound like I thought it would in my head. Sects, all kinds of those, in this church, and there's all kinds of different monks that live in this church, and they're all Christians. They're all part of God's family, and they don't get along. So these monks, they they live there, you know, they read their Bibles all the time, they pray all the time, you know, they mostly do holy church things. And uh, they don't get along so much so that they do not open the church every day. In fact, there are two Muslim families who are in charge of opening the church. One who has passed down a key through the, for the building, for many generations, for uh, hundreds, I think thousands of years. And then there's one other family who actually opens the door. So for whatever reason, they don't agree either. You know, So one person unlocks it, the other one opens the door. And they do this every single day. And then at night, they close the door and they lock it. Because long ago, the Christians agreed that they could not agree on who would hold the key. And so the Muslims actually do it for them. And I was reading every now and then these monks, they get so upset over turf wars that they start having brawls like Kung Fu on each other. And the Israeli troops are called in to break up the brawls. Sometimes monks get arrested and it's serious. Okay. So they're in there fighting each other in the most holy site in all of the world. These Christian monks Man, if those guys can't get along and all they do is pray and read the Bible and spend time with God, it's good to talk about conflict. That's our topic for today, conflict. So we're going to look at Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And you can start turning there in your Bible now if you want. We're going to spend a lot of time there today. So Nehemiah, he works in the government. He's the cupbearer to the king. Uh, the king is a foreign king. And Nehemiah, he's doing his work. And one day he is so burdened about his homeland, Jerusalem, the holy city. And you know he asks, how is it doing? What's it like? He hears that it's in complete ruins. And he just starts weeping because he cares about the things that God cares about. And he's so burdened. He goes to the king and he says, this means so much to me, king. Could I rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Now, Nehemiah, he was not a contractor. He had no experience Uh, He's a government official, right? You know, he doesn't usually work with his hands. No one asked him to do this. Nobody even was interested that he was doing this. He just all of a sudden one day got a burden from God, completely unqualified and said, you know what, God, I will go after this thing that you care about. And so he got permission from the king and he started building the walls back up. And you need to know when we build anything for God, face opposition. Opposition is an indication of a God opportunity. Opposition is an indication of a God opportunity. Anybody facing some opposition today? Could be in any area of your life. Sometimes we think, oh, if it's for God, everything's going to go perfect. Smooth sailing. (laughs) And some of you are laughing, you know. (laughs) If it's for God, we have a very real enemy, the devil who doesn't like when things are going well. He doesn't like when God's kingdom is built. When you're facing opposition, it's confirmation that you're on the right path. Confrontation is confirmation. Conflict is confirmation. Jesus says that Satan, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal our peace, kill our purpose, destroy our destiny. But Jesus says he cannot touch your soul. He cannot touch your soul. Come on. And so we have three things that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to put them all up on the screen for you just to kick it off, and then we're going to go through them one by one. The first one is that since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to distract you. The second one is since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discredit you. And the third one is since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discourage you. And you know, he doesn't come like a Halloween costume type devil where you're like really aware, like, ah. He comes to you in the form of conflict with the people that you care about. He comes to you in that fight with your spouse or your kids or your colleagues. Now, not, not every conflict is from the devil. You're also dealing with Humanity, human spirits, we have very real emotions and things that we disagree about. We're not often on the same page. We talked a little bit about unity last week. You should go back and listen if you didn't get a chance to. But we're talking about conflict that distracts you, that discredits you, that discourages you from God's purpose for your life and how to handle it. So for Nehemiah, opposition came from some guys. One was named Sam another Tobiah. And they're from enemy nations. But if you trace back their lineage, they're actually related to Nehemiah. And they're actually really closely related to the high priest of God at that time. So these are people that they knew, that had relatives in the church. You'd think they'd be excited about the wall being built back up. We're going to look at it, Nehemiah 4 and verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem were going so well that the breaks in the wall were being fixed, they were excited. They threw a party. No. They were absolutely furious. They put their heads together and decided to fight against Jerusalem and create as much trouble as they could. Gee, Thanks we countered with prayer to our God and set around the clock guard against them. Why were these guys mad? I mean, they're part of other nations, so maybe they felt a little threatened, but this isn't a zero-sum game. It's not like, oh, if the the walls of Jerusalem go up and Nehemiah gets what he wants, that these guys are gonna be ruined and crushed. No, 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 no. They might've benefited as well, you know? If the city is thriving, everyone else thrives too. But the Bible says, for whatever reason, they were furious that he was successful. When you do anything great, there will be people who hate. There will be critics and doubters and naysayers and even haters. And how does Nehemiah respond? The first thing he does, he talks to God. I love that. He talks to God. He doesn't talk to the haters. When you acknowledge your critics, you give them power You validate what they're saying. You don't owe them anything. You don't have to answer to them. You answer to God. I know. It's hard to do because we want everyone to understand us. If I could just explain, then they'll understand what I'm trying to do. They'll know my heart. These people weren't seeking understanding, though it says they were trying to make trouble. You cannot always give people what they want. You're not God. In fact, he doesn't give people what they want. He gives them what they need. So the second thing he does, first thing is prayer. Second thing is he sets up a guard against them. Boundaries. Boundaries are healthy. Access is a privilege that comes with trust. Not everyone is for you. Proverbs says, guard your heart for everything you do flows through it, flows from it. The more protected something is, the more valuable that it is. If you think about, if you have some gold, you'll definitely put that in a bank. You know, uh, if if you have a garden, you put a fence around it to protect it. If you have children in school, there's a security system that keeps them safe. How much more valuable is your heart? We should protect our hearts in the same way. Not everybody gets access. Hi, can I come in? No, 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 you can't come in. Knock, 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 can I come in? No, you can't come in. Boundaries. A little bit later, he goes on to survey the wall. We're going to go down to verse 13, but you should read the whole thing this week. It says, I stationed armed guards at the most valuable places of the wall and assigned people by families with their swords, lances, and bows. After looking things over, I stood up and spoke to the nobles, officials, and everyone else. Don't be afraid of them. Put your minds on the master, great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I love this. Not only did Nehemiah have a dream, he empowered so many people to be a part. People with all different backgrounds. Some of them were goldsmiths, perfumers, some of them were mayors, everybody together united for one purpose, to build God's kingdom. That's what we're here to do too as the church. So he says, he gives them some advice. You know, when people are coming against them creating trouble, he says, "Do Not fear. Put your mind on the master and the master on your mind. (laughs) A little bit of a 1994 Snoop Dogg reference. Put your mind on the master. When opposition comes, put your mind on the master. Get your focus off of yourself. It's his battle. Come on. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Turn your eyes on Jesus. And then he says, fight. Fight. Fight for your families. Fight for your children. Fight for the next generation. Fight for your purpose. Fight for your potential. Come on. Fight for your spouse. Fight for the people that you care about. What you're doing is too important. It's not just about you. It's about all the people around you. They need you to fight. Focus on God and fight. We're going to skip over to chapter 6. Nehemiah 6, 1 to 2. So in the meantime, they're doing all of this building stuff and there's still lots of opposition. When Sanballat Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard I had rebuilt the wall, there were no more breaks in it. Even though I hadn't yet installed the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come and meet with us at Kephirim in the valley of Ono. You know nothing good happens in Ono, right? <laughs> Hey, you want to come down to, oh, no, Mm -mm. oh, no, I don't. (laughs) So they're like, take a break. Take a break from building. You know, come get some lemonade with us. Come, come rest. Come explain yourself to us. We actually have some questions about what you're doing. We have some concerns. You think you're special? You think you're better than us? You think you're more important than us? Come, come meet with us. Explain yourself. You know, questions, they come innocently, but the moment you entertain them, you stop your progress. Think about Noah, he was building the ark. He didn't have time to stop, to answer questions of every single person who came by him. He's like, guys, there's a flood coming. You're gonna see the results, okay? Let your results speak for themselves. Let God speak for himself. It's his plans, it's his vision, it's his kingdom. You're just following his directions. Come on. So point one, since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to distract you, distract you. Have you guys ever been in the middle of an important task or a really personal conversation and then your cell phone goes ding? Anybody? What do you do in that moment? It already pulls you out of the moment. You're like, ah, it might be important. I don't know. I'm trying not to think about it. I'm focused, really focused. Distraction. It's such a common experience for so many of us in this digital age. Our focus is constantly interrupted by emails, texts, notifications. If you found yourself struggling or you lose track of your thoughts because of distractions, you're not alone. Hello, all of us. But have you ever wondered about the cost of these distractions? There was a study done in 2005, which it's almost 20 years old at this point, but it said every time you pick up your cell phone in the middle of something, your IQ drops 10 points in that task you're doing. So you pick up your cell phone, you're having a conversation, and you're like, uh, what was I talking about? Or you're working on your really important work, and you look at your phone, and then you go back to your work, and you're like, oh, man, I, I feel like I, I'm not getting smarter. Your IQ just dropped. Another part of the study showed that 50% of us, when we see those distractions, we're like, I have to respond right now. And we just let it take us completely out of the moment. We're really good at multitasking, but what we actually need is single tasking. Nobody talks about it. And we're all proud of our multitasking. I'm proud of multitasking, but we need to be singular in our focus, not distracted. And that's what Nehemiah did. I love it. Uh, Nehemiah 6, 2 to 3. I knew they were scheming to hurt me, so I sent messengers back with this. I am doing a great work. I can't come down. Why should the work come to a standstill just so I can come down to see you? Four times they sent this message, and four times I gave them my answer. Four times they said, come on just meet with us. Come on. It'll only take a few minutes. Come on. Four times. And four times he says the same thing. No. I can't come down. I'm doing a great work. I'm in my purpose. I can't be distracted. Come on. He says no. He doesn't try to change his um, response every time. He's not like, oh, They didn't take no for an answer the first time. Maybe I should say something else. I should give more reasons. Maybe I should explain myself more. No, no, no. Four times. He says the same thing. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. There are times in our lives when we need to say no. And no is a complete sentence. You don't have to explain yourself. Let your no be no. You can say no without explanation. When distractions come, dismiss them. That's the second part of point one. Dismiss distractions. Dismiss distractions. I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Winston Churchill, he said, you'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. Come on, I'm doing a great work. Parents, you're doing a great work. Your kids are the only ones who will remember all those late nights at work. Your workplace won't remember them. Don't let the good distract you from the great you are doing a great work no i cannot work late tonight i cannot come down your business that you're working on that you've put everything that you have in all these side hustles keep popping up no no no. i must be singular in my focus i'm doing a great work i don't have time for all of those things i have one purpose your debt. You're trying to pay off debt. I'm doing a great work. No, I can't spend my money on all this temporary stuff. Saving yourself from marriage n- for marriage. No, no, no. I can't compromise my standards. I'm doing a great work. I'm on this journey with God. For your Sabbath. Guard your time. God says work 6 days, rest 1. I know that's hard for us to set up boundaries and say no, no, no. This one day, I will give to God. I will spend time with Him. I will enjoy His gifts. And what happens is He gives you time throughout the rest of the week that you can't make happen. You have more time when you rest one and trust Him with that one. Maybe come in to volunteer or invest in Hope Kids. I can't sleep in today. I'm doing a great work It's my purpose. It's part of who I am. Distractions come as harmless opportunities. They're not bad things. An opportunity to expand your influence, to prove something, to make money, to get a promotion, to help someone. Opportunities to be great at things that don't matter. We want to be great at the great work that God has for us. If you're always available to everyone, eventually you'll have nothing for anyone. Steve Jobs, he said, people think focus means saying yes to the thing that you need to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. It's good at saying no. Our staff, they always have access to me, but on Mondays and Tuesdays, when they want to meet, I say no because I need to write my message for Sunday, because I need to come and feed the church, right? I'm doing a great work and our staff's amazing and they're never bothering me. They always have really good things that we get to meet about, but I must be singular in my focus. I always ask people, why do they want to meet with me? You know, sometimes people might not need to meet with you. Maybe it's someone else that they could be spending time with, someone else they could ask their question to, someone else who's better than you. You're not the be all end all, neither am I. Ask them, what do you need to meet about? How can I serve you? It helps you have better communication and it gives you less anxiety going into meetings too. Sometimes people think they need to meet with you, but they don't need to meet with you. I met with somebody one time, I asked them, you know, all right, so what's the purpose of this meeting? Let's begin with the end in mind. If I know what you're going after, I know how I can serve you better. And, and they said, I just want to tell you all the things that I hate about you. This is a true story. Happened last year. And I said, you know what? I can save you a meeting. (laughs) We actually don't have to meet about that, okay? I have trusted people in my life that I listen to for accountability and correction. You cannot have correction without love. Come on. If someone wants to meet with you because they don't like you, they want to make trouble, just tell them no. You don't owe them anything. Your time is valuable. We're going to do a whole series on time in November. It's called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, all about our powerful time. God gives us time. It's a gift. And how do we steward it, especially around the holidays, because things get pretty crazy. What's the great work that God has called you to? What's your purpose? What has he put in front of you in this season? How much time are you investing in it? Where are you allowing yourself to be distracted? You know, my dad, he always talks about living for retirement. He's like, 55, I'm going to retire. I can't wait. He died when he was 53. Don't live for the future. You don't know that you'll have more time. Don't say, oh, when the kids are in school, then I can live my life. When they're out of school, when they're out of the house, when my job slows down, live in the now, right Now, each day is a gift. Make it count. (laughs) Set boundaries so you can say no to things that aren't serving you and yes to the things that God has prepared for you. Can you imagine if you say yes to all these good things and God was like, I had this for you, but I couldn't get you to focus. You were distracted by all the other things. Sometimes there's work right in front of you. I have your kids for you. I have your career for you. I have your family for you. Sometimes there's assignments in the middle of the day. I have this person for you to talk to. That nudge in your heart, in your mind, to call someone. That's for you. We are God's handiwork, his masterpieces, the Bible says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. He's prepared good things for you. Jesus, he said, I must be about my father's business. I must do the great work that he's created me to do. Everybody say, I'm going to do a great work. Come on. Nehemiah 6, 5 through 6. Here we go. Next part of the story. The fifth time, the same messenger, the same message. They're relentless. Sanballat sent an unsealed letter with this message. Unsealed. You think you wanted other people to look at it? The word is out among the nations and Geshem says it's true. Oh, Geshem's talking about you. You and all the Jews are planning to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. The word is you want to be king. Obviously not true. He asked the king permission to do this. You want to be king. You've appointed prophets to announce in Jerusalem there's a king in Judah. The king is gonna be told all this, don't you think? We should sit down and have a talk now. Hmm? I send him back this. There's nothing to what you're saying. You've made it all up. Sanballat's like, hi, Geshem's talking about you. This rumor sounds like it's true. Maybe you should explain yourself. If you meet with me, I could help you. Point two: since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discredit you. Don't be surprised. When someone says, did you hear what they're saying about you? Why don't you address their accusations? You must be guilty since you won't look at it. But Sambalat, he didn't want help. He wanted attention. That's why he sent an unsealed letter. He's like, oh, it's okay if other people just want to take a peek. You want to look at it before we just deliver it? I've got some gossip about Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is direct with him. He doesn't even give him an audience. He says, there's nothing to what you're saying. You've made it all up. That's it and he keeps doing his great work. My pastor Richie, he likes to say, when people bring me a pebble about myself, I don't pick it up, I don't look at it, I don't wanna know what they're saying about me, I throw it away and I say, that is not my pebble, that is not mine to look at. We like to know what people are saying because we think we can change someone's opinion of us, but you can't change other people, only God can. I don't wanna know what people are saying, come on because then I have more to forgive. If they didn't say it to me, they don't want help. And I'll never do big things for God if I'm distracted by small-minded people and neither will you. Don't, want el- don't let someone else's opinion of you disrupt God's calling for you, come on. Every family has drama. Church is a family, we got drama. Whatever someone says about you or about someone else to you, let it die. It's like the Lorax. Let it die, let it die, let it shrivel up and die. Don't repeat it. Don't look at it. Don't put fuel on the fire. Proverbs 26.20 says, when you run out of wood, the fire goes out. When the gossip ends, the coral dies down. Let it die. Feel free to sing to people when they come to you with some gossip. Just let it die. Diffuse drama. Diffuse drama. Dismiss distractions. Diffuse drama. Can I tell you about the gossip that I heard about you? Nope. Guard, guard my heart. If this person didn't come to me, I'm going to live like what they said doesn't exist. They don't want help. They want attention. Let it die. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about this. Verse 15. If a fellow believer hurts you, that's somebody in God's family, go and tell them. Because you know what? Sometimes we hurt each other. It may not be intentional, but we're human. Go and tell them. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. That doesn't mean tell the whole church. Tell a leader in the church who can help you go and talk to them. If you won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch, confront him with the need for repentance, and offer again God's forgiving love. If you have something against someone, go to them, just you and him. If they won't listen, take someone with you because that mediator might be able to say, hey, hold on, you've got like this whole plank in your eye. Let's talk about that thing before you go talk to them about their thing. If they still won't listen, get a leader from the church, one of your volunteer coaches. And if they still won't listen, do the whole thing. Again, keep forgiving them. We want to assume the best until proven otherwise. That's what love does. I'd rather assume the best and be wrong than assume the worst and be wrong or right. Believe the best about people. Uh, I was at the ER with my son a few weeks ago and someone texted me. They said, oh my gosh. I saw that you were at the ER. Are you okay?" And I said, thank you so much, you know, and told them what was going on. And um, they prayed for me, and it was so sweet. Like six hours later, I was like, wait a second, why were you at the ER? And they're like, oh yeah, we were there for this reason. And I love the grace that that person gave me not to assume, oh, she doesn't care about me. She doesn't ask about me. How dare she do that? No, no, no. I love that they assumed the best. They were so sweet and caring. And then they gave me room to be human and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think to ask how you knew that. Assume the best. Most of the time, people aren't out to get us. People aren't like Sambalat and Tobiah, they're not like that. Most of the time, there are places where we just rub each other the wrong way. There are just little things that we need to work out. Um, Sometimes, people will come to you with issues about other people. I met with a couple one time and they're like, I hate this thing about this person and that thing and they did this to me and that to me and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and there's a lot of things. And I gave them empathy and I listened. I said, I'm so sorry those things happened. All right, now let's call that person and get them down there to this meeting so that you can tell them all these things too. So we got the person down to the meeting. They came down. They said, hi, yeah, what's going on? And you know that couple had nothing to say when the person got there. Man, if you're not going to say it to the person, don't say it to anybody else. Let it go. You know, you can do the same thing if you hear something about somebody at work or a church or at home. Oh, hold on just a second. Let, let me bring them into the conversation. Let's talk about it. That's the only way anything's going to get resolved. I can't help you by listening to problems. I can only help you by solving them. And you know, I've learned this the hard way. We all make mistakes. We don't get it perfect every time. But when you see how much God values people, it changes the way that you talk about them. James 4 gives us such a good picture. Verse 11, don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? Who do I think I am to meddle in someone else's destiny? I love this picture because he's saying, when you talk about people, you're spray painting graffiti all over God's masterpiece. Ephesians says, We're God's masterpiece created by him. Each and every person is a masterpiece. Don't spray paint graffiti on them. That's God's masterpiece. Don't worry about them. That's what I tell my kids all the time. They're like, Well, he did this, she did that. Focus on your great work, focus on who you're becoming. Focus on yourself and what God has for you and the places that you need to grow. I'm always saying that to them. All right, one more point. Point three, since the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discourage you. We're going to go back to Nehemiah for this. Nehemiah chapter six, verse nine. They were just trying to intimidate us. This one's a different version. It's from the NIV because I love the way it says it. They're just trying to intimidate us, imagining they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. I love it. They were trying to discourage us. You know, everybody gets discouraged from time to time. If you think about Elijah, he had this amazing battle with the prophets of Baal and he won. And then he got all depressed and he wanted to die. God took care of him, fed him we all have times when we'll get discouraged. Nehemiah, he could have quit. Maybe you started reading your Bible this week and things started going wrong. Or you acted on what God spoke to you last Sunday and there was a little bit of opposition. Or, you know, Kevin went to get baptized today and there were some things going wrong this morning. (laughs) That's normal. When you're building who God is in your life, growing in his family, there's going to be opposition, but Jesus already won. Come on. Focus on God and keep going. Last point is let discouragement drive determination. Let discouragement drive determination. Nehemiah 6:15. The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. It had taken 52 days. When all of our enemies heard the news and all the surrounding nations saw, our enemies totally lost their nerve. They knew that God was behind this work. Come on. When they saw the finished product, they knew that it was from God. In 52 days, Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. The length of the wall is two and a half miles. The height of the wall, it's taller than from the floor to the ceiling of this room. Two and a half miles, taller than this room. I don't know how long it took this to build this room, but I think it was more than 52 days. The average thickness of the wall is eight feet. That's like one of the widths of those backdrops. They're a little over seven feet. Eight feet wide, 40 feet tall. Two and a half miles long, 52 days, with no construction equipment? That blows my mind. How? How did they do that? They were all building together. They were on guard together. They didn't get discouraged. They didn't give up. They let it drive them. Every time their enemy came against them, no, I'm doing a great job work. I got to focus on my part of the wall. I love it. Each person together in unity helped to build that wall. And Nehemiah, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't anything in ministry. The Bible talks about how he went back to his government job after the wall was built. He's like, okay, that was my thing I needed to do. He went back to his job. God had a great work for him. God didn't miraculously build the wall. He didn't just make it happen. No, no, no. The people did. He used one man with a burden from God and one nation in unity building together. They faced opposition the entire time they were building, but they did not give up. 52 days. What could you accomplish in 52 days? That's from today until October 18th. Where's God calling you to take up that vision that he's planted in your heart? I get to hear people's dreams all the time and I love it. And so many times they are God dreams because most of the time his dreams come in the simple and the mundane and the thing right in front of us. And sometimes we just get so enamored with purpose, we miss it, we're like, ah, That's not that exciting. No, 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 no. That's God's dream for you. There are people in this church with God dreams to spend more time with their aging parents, with God dreams to mentor young people, with God dreams to see teens connect to their creator in worship, with God dreams to buy properties and build businesses, to join local boards and make an impact. God dreams to change our region. Don't worry about what people will say about your dream. If it's from God, it will not fail. And the fruit will speak for itself. There are God dreams that start here in his family. And we get to encourage each other in those dreams and then be sent out to impact the world. And next week we're going to talk just a little bit more about our mission, one mission, one purpose. And if you've been wondering, what's my purpose? I'll give you a hint, you're probably already in it. Come on. One mission. If the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to distract you. Dismiss distractions. If the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discredit you. Diffuse drama. If the enemy can't destroy you, he'll try to discourage you. Let discouragement drive that determination. As we close today, I want to remind you that the church is a family that we come to on the weekend to grow together, encourage one another, and be launched out into our purpose throughout the week. It's the place where we bring others to come alive and who God says they are and be a part of the family and where we experience God together. It's the place that we're sent out from into our world. This is the family that you were created for. And this family, we become a part just by trusting in Jesus. And that means God is our father, Jesus is our older brother, and we become brothers and sisters in him. You know, Jesus, he thought you were worth dying for to be a part of his family. And he gave his life so that you can live yours brand new in God's original intent for you. And until you trust in Jesus, you're not quite a part of his family yet. You can come to his house, you can hang out with his kids, but he has an invitation for you. He wants to adopt you into his family. And so every week, we like to give you the opportunity to trust in Jesus. We're gonna close our eyes. We're gonna bow our heads. If you wanna trust in Jesus, just repeat after me. We're gonna pray out loud together. We say, God, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Make me a new creation. Thank you for adopting me into your family. I trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.